Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Going through a little bit of history and that short clip there, the last voice being that of President Johnson, who got us into uh, one heck of a war. And when you think of heroes, who do you think of? For me, it's people who take significant personal risks for the substantial benefit of greater humanity. Now, you've probably never heard about 2,800 American men and women, both black and white, who broke the law to travel to Spain to take up arms with other internationals to fight fascists armed with Nazi bombs and planes. These Americans fought a losing battle for democracy in the 1930s. You may have heard me mention the Abraham Lincoln Brigade before, and there's a new book out by, frankly, one of my favorite authors about this often buried bright spot in American 20th century history. The book is Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War, 1936-39. Adam Hoekshild, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Bert. Uh, Adam Hoekshild is author of seven books and co-founder of Mother Jones. He wrote the, frankly, incredible book that a good friend of mine is reading right now, King Leopold's Ghost, about a little-known holocaust in what was the Belgian Congo, and his more recent To End All Wars, which shed light on the largely women-run British peace movement during the insane and horrific First World War. Now, I will say right up front, being on the board of directors of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives, of course, I've read a few books on these brave Americans who volunteered to fight for democracy in the Spanish Civil War. And I had the tremendous honor of getting to know many of the Lincoln Brigade veterans, the last one of whom passed away recently at age 100. They're all gone now. And while I know a bit about the story, I learned quite a bit from this new book, Spain in Our Hearts. It seemed more personal, and Adam, you paint a vivid picture of what it was like for the defenders of Republican Spain and the journalists covering the war. Again, thanks for being with us, Adam Hochschild. You write that the Spanish Civil War was at the time seen as a, quote, moral and political touchstone, and that for many vets, it would also become the defining experience of their lives. How so? Well, I think it was a touchstone in in this way, Bert, that when you try to imagine yourself back to the world of the mid-1930s, 
the thing that seemed most ominous to people all over the world was the relentless rise of fascism. In 1935, uh, Benito Mussolini, the fascist dictator of Italy, had gone and conquered himself a colony in Africa, yeah. uh, Ethiopia, one of the few uh, still independent parts of the African continent. He was talking about making the Mediterranean an Italian sea. Uh, in Germany, Hitler had taken power in 1933 and was talking about expanding to the east and showing Russia who was boss. And in most of Eastern Europe, something we, we tend to forget today, there were regimes of the extreme right, uh, usually sort of semi-fascist and uh, very anti-Semitic that were in power. And uh, as the French writer André Malraux said, fascism has spread its great black wings over Europe. And then in July 1936, uh, Spain in Spain, which was one of the few bright spots on the European continent, because uh, five years earlier, uh, an elected government had replaced centuries of monarchy. In July 1936, a group of extremely right-wing generals, yeah. uh, calling themselves the Spanish nationalists, uh, rose up against that elected government, and it was immediately clear who their friends were. Within the first uh, 10 or 12 days, Hitler and Mussolini were starting to send them a stream of arms, military advisors, aircraft, pilots, and it began to look as if Hitler would have another ally in Europe. So that's why the Spanish Civil War seemed such a, a moral touchstone to people. And it there was that military uprising. Who, What, what interests in Spain would have supported that. Now, I understand before the Republic was declared in 1931, uh, things were quite different in Spain. Was there not even public education, as I recall? Well, up until 1931, all education was controlled by the Catholic Church, uh, and Spain's Catholic hierarchy was by far the most reactionary in any major nation in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, Education was segregated between girls and boys, and for girls it was very strong on sewing and religion and not much else. Uh, and the church lost a great deal of power when Spain's uh, elected government took over in 1931. They began secularizing education. Uh, it was a country with vast disparities of wealth, a uh, small uh, landed elite at the very top uh, huge landowners owning these big estates, millions of peasants uh, uh, living in dirt-floored huts with little or no land, working on the estates, large industrialists owned what industry there was. It, it had one of the most unequal distributions of wealth anywhere in Europe. And when the Spanish Republic came into existence in 1931, one of the jobs before it, obviously, was trying to reduce those disparities, mm -hmm. uh, to begin land reform, to begin secularizing education. So when the, the Nationalist uh, Army officers staged their coup attempt in 1936, among the forces backing them were the big industrialists, the big landlords, and the Catholic Church. And you can actually see photographs of cardinals and bishops raising their right hand in that fascist salute alongside uh, the nationalists and, and their leader, uh, General Francisco Franco. And you have written a couple of uh, rather 
impressive books. What got you to write this one? There have been other books written, of course, about the Abraham Lincoln Brigade and the Spanish Civil War. This is certainly, uh, it, it paints more of a, a colorful picture as, as far as I can tell. But what was your inspiration, reason for writing this? Well, I think that an event as big and as important and as tragic and dramatic mm. as the Spanish Civil War uh, can be the fodder for many, many more, more books. I certainly don't think mine is the definitive one, uh, and I hope it's far from the last. It's always been a subject that's interested me. Um, like you, I had the privilege of knowing mm. uh, some of the American volunteers who, who fought there, uh, all of them men 30 or 40 years older than me, all of them gone now. Yes. Uh, a couple were good friends for many years. A couple of others were colleagues in one of my first jobs as a newspaper reporter in San Francisco in the 1960s. I don't think I knew as many of them as, as you must have, uh, being on the board of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade archives. But I used to hear their stories. I was fascinated oh, by them. Incredible. Then, like many people, I also... Uh, read and was deeply moved by George Orwell's memoir, Homage to Catalonia, which paints a somewhat di different picture of the war by Ernest Hemingway's uh, novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls, based in part on his experiences in Spain. And I thought, wow, that would be an interesting piece of history to explore. It certainly is. And, and one of the things you looked into was how the war was reported. You followed uh, some journalists around in the book, uh, including, uh, well, George Orwell and certainly Hemingway. And uh, Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway plays an interesting role there. Uh, and, and one of the quotes I got uh, from your book, Spain and Our Hearts, uh, you, you quote Hemingway saying, combat, quote, is the nastiest thing human beings can do to each other, but the most exciting how was Hemingway perceived by the Americans, the, the men and women in the uh, Lincoln Brigade, as well as the internationals? Well, Hemingway is, is such a larger-than-life figure. It's always a struggle, if he's present in a book you're writing, not to have him take up the entire stage, which, of course, he tended to do in any situation <laughs> that he was in. Yeah. Um, he, I think, was very well liked by the American volunteers in Spain because he was passionately partisan. Uh, yeah. He was there as, you know, he was at that time really America's most famous writer and was, yeah. was well known all over the, all over the world. Uh, oddly, he had been uh, a man who thought of himself as a pretty non-political person up until the Spanish Civil War began. But he'd spent a lot of time in Spain. It had, of course, been the scene of the novel that first brought him to wide public attention, that the sun also rises. He'd also spent more time in Spain writing a book about bullfighting in the early 1930s. Mm, very much. And when these generals staged their coup, Hemingway sort of took it as a personal affront uh -huh. uh, to a country that he loved. Uh, he got himself hired as a correspondent for the North American Newspaper Alliance, a syndicate of some 50 newspapers in this country. He made four long trips there, right. wrote uh, many dispatches, and uh, was very much uh, admired and beloved by the American volunteers because, you know, they saw him as extremely interested in and supportive yeah. of what they were doing. One of the things I discovered in the course of doing this this, this book, and it wasn't my discovery. There's a Hemingway scholar who's gone into it in much great 
deal of detail, Will Watson, was that the episode that Hemingway based his novel For Whom the Bell Tolls on was actually a guerrilla raid behind enemy lines in which he participated. Ah. So there was a moment when uh, he completely shed his role as, as journalist and uh, spent a night uh, <clears throat> crossing a mountain range with a group of Spanish Republic uh, guerrilla fighters. They blew up a railway line. They trekked back. Uh, and he never told anybody about this, but uh, years later, the leader of that guerrilla band was interviewed and described this episode. And the Hemingway scholar, uh, <coughs> William Watson, uh, checked it all out, and it, it does check out, and it appears that Hemingway took part in that, in that raid. So he, uh, he was a passionate partisan of the cause. Uh, you know, he, Hemingway's a paradoxical figure, I think, a very mm. great writer, but in many ways a very obnoxious human being who was pretty full of himself and yeah. had to be on center stage wherever he was. Yeah. But uh, he was very much beloved by the American volunteers in this war for his support of them. And there were certainly a lot of uh, journalists uh, covering, I mean, you know, the Bang Bang is always good uh, good for getting uh, headlines and good for getting stories. And some of the, uh, it was, uh, you, you cover other journalists as well who uh, sometimes did kind of cross the line and, and take sides. Mm. Who else was there in that? Well, at one point, one of the volunteers in Spain wrote home uh, to this country and said, Everybody but Shakespeare is here. <laughs> there were nearly a thousand foreign correspondents who reported from Spain at one point or another during the war. Uh, it was a huge news event. It was really the news event yeah. of those years. In the, for the period that the war raged from mid-1936 to or early 1939, there were more than a thousand front-page headlines in the New York Times uh, about the war, more than on any other single subject. Uh, the re-election of President Roosevelt, the rise of Hitler, the toll of the Great Depression. Uh, so it attracted a huge amount of attention. But what interested me was this. I've done some reporting for overseas myself, and occasionally from conflict zones. And one of the things I've always noticed is that reporters in such places uh, tend to practice a kind of herd behavior. Yes. They hang out together, and I've been part of those herds myself mm -hmm. occasionally. Mm -hmm. uh, they tend to report the same stories, yes. because the last thing that any reporter wants to hear from home is a message from an editor saying, well, the other newspaper, the other network okay. reported this or that battle or event or whatever, why haven't we heard anything about it from you? So everybody keeps a close eye on what everyone else is writing. Yeah. And I think, as a result, they often miss some stories. Yes. And I got fascinated by the stories that the correspondents in Spain missed. That's what I was, that you anticipated my next question, with that huge array of talented reporters. They ignored a big story right in front of them. What, what was that? Well... For the reporters, the big story was the bombing of Madrid. This was the city where they were stationed. It was the first time a major European capital had been under heavy, sustained aerial bombardment, something that the continent would come to know all too well, unfortunately, in World War II. And they wrote hundreds of thousands of words about this. 
but they never looked up in the sky at these V-shaped formations of bombers, and these were mostly German bombers sent by Hitler, flown by Nazi pilots. They never looked up and asked, where's their fuel coming from? And this should have been an obvious question, because nationalist Spain uh, <coughs> had no oil wells. Hitler and Mussolini, who were sending the bombers and all kinds of other help as well, were oil importers, not exporters. Um, they could have theoretically advanced General Franco money to buy oil on the world market, but that would have been very expensive. And if he had bought oil on the world market, where would it have been likely to come from? Most likely, the United States, which was a huge oil producer. And that is indeed where it did come from. Uh, <coughs> and this was a story the reporters never pursued, and it's a fascinating one. Yes. Uh, the full details of which only have come out in recent years, in part through the efforts of a Spanish scholar, Guillermo Martinez, who very kindly shared his documents with me. Um, General Franco's principal oil supplier was Texaco, mm -hmm. a major American multinational oil company, whose CEO at the time, a Norwegian immigrant named Torkild Reber, uh, was a huge supporter of Franco, so much so that he sold him all this oil at a big discount, uh, something he never told Texaco shareholders about, or as far as we can tell, he never even told his own board of directors about it. Uh, he sold it on credit, which was a violation of a U.S. law, yeah. uh, U.S. neutrality legislation, so said you couldn't sell oil to a country at war uh, on credit. Mm -hmm. He violated U.S. law in another way by shipping the oil there on Texaco tankers, also banned under U.S. law. And these tankers would <clears throat> load up at the Texaco pipeline terminal in Port Arthur, Texas. When customs agents got on board, they would show them paperwork uh, showing the tanker was bound for Amsterdam or Rotterdam or Antwerp. Then at sea, the captains would open sealed orders redirecting them to ports in nationalist Spain. And that's actually not all that Reber did. He had Texaco uh, officials all over the world. And, of course, an oil company has tank farms, loading docks, installations in ports everywhere. Sure. Uh, asked these folks to dig up any information they could find about oil tankers heading for the Spanish Republic, this information was telegraphed to the Texaco office in Paris, and it was immediately passed on to the Spanish Nationalist High Command. And in a couple of cases, we can trace the cases of tankers carrying oil to the Spanish Republic that were sunk, damaged, or captured because of information supplied by Texaco. Absolutely amazing. If you just tuned in, keeping democracy alive. Bert Cohen here. The book is Spain in Our Hearts, the author Adam Hochschild. And back to, to Texaco, how crucial was Texaco to the fascists, the nationalists winning the war? Well, they, they needed oil from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, because modern armies run on oil. Absolutely. You know, aircraft require aviation gasoline, tanks uh, run on diesel fuel, uh, trucks and cars and so forth run on regular gasoline. And 
uh, 60% of the oil going to either side in Spain during the war uh, went for military purposes. Um, if Texaco had not stepped into the breach this way, conceivably the Spanish nationalists could have gotten oil from elsewhere, but it would have been more expensive, uh, and it might have been much more costly for, for Hitler and Mussolini, who were supporting them. So it certainly was a crucial help. Did uh, this uh, 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 fellow, the uh, CEO of Texaco, did he ever face any charges for violating the law, as he so blatantly he did? He got a mild wrist slap from the U.S. government's Justice Department, a $22,000 fine. Hmm. Um, Cost but of doing basically, business. the Roosevelt administration was not interested in making a big case out of this. They didn't know everything that was going on. They knew some of it, but they didn't know the full story. Uh, Reber, however, got himself into a great deal of trouble after the war ended in 1940, which was during that twilight period when World War II had begun in Europe, but the U.S. had not yet entered the war, so the U.S. was still doing business with Nazi Germany and so on. Uh, Reber, because he had such a penchant for hiring fascists and, and Nazis, had a couple of Germans on the Texaco payroll. And it turned out that one of them in Texaco's New York office was sending information to a German in Texaco's Berlin office that was disguised as telegrams about patent claims, but was actually intelligence data on the U.S. aircraft industry. It was information about ships cargo ships from New York setting sail for Britain. Mm. Uh, British intelligence got onto this somehow, probably by eavesdropping on the transatlantic cable. Mm. They leaked the story to the New York Herald Tribune, and Reber lost his job. However, he landed on his feet because uh, General Franco immediately gave him a job as chief buyer for Spain's National Oil Company. And, of course, Franco was in power until his death in 1975. Right. And one of the amazing things, a lot really was quite uh, colorful, shall we say, in this book, Spain in Our Hearts, uh, was the treatment of, of women, especially young women. Uh, I, I was rather shocked. Uh, and, and as you write, as with many fundamentalist movements, the nationalists were fiercely determined to keep women in their place. I wonder if you could say more about that. And it was just shocking, some of the stories you told in the book. Well, it's true that there is something about fundamentalist movements, whether we're talking about uh, Islamic fundamentalists, uh, Orthodox Jewry, fundamentalist Christians, or fascist movements in, in Spain, that are really deeply upset by uppity women of any kind. Hmm. Women stepping out of traditional roles, uh, and forcing them back into the most traditional and subservient roles is uh, something uh, very high on the agenda of all such movements. Uh, and they were treated very nastily uh, <clears throat> by the nationalists in Spain. Uh, you know, for a young woman to have uh, a labor union card, for example, was cause for 
uh, being executed or for being mass raped by soldiers who were encouraged to do this by their officers. And in the early days of the war, the Spanish nationalists actually made no attempt to disguise this practice from foreign correspondents. And there's account after account, you know, by American and British reporters who were on the scene. Uh, In one case, a guy from the New York Herald Tribune who went to an officer and and protested that this was going on. And the officer said, oh, forget about it. You know, these women won't last long. They'll be dead in a couple of hours. Don't worry about it. Uh, And, um, you know, later on, in public relations terms, the nationalists uh, cleaned up their act a little bit and and stopped uh, boasting about these practices, but they certainly went on. The mass rapes, uh, brutalization of women, uh, they branded the uh, nationalist emblem of yoke and arrows on the breasts of dissident women. It was it was really horrible. Absolutely amazing. And the U.S. and Britain and France stayed out of it. Of course, you know the the people fighting on behalf of the republic, on behalf of democracy, very much wanted to have support from the Western democracies. Was it not unreasonable? for the Republican government to believe they would be able to acquire weapons from countries like France, England, and the U.S.? They certainly hoped to do so, because these were other democracies. But each of those countries had its own reasons for saying no. Uh, In Britain, for example, Britain was under a conservative government uh, at that time that was indeed very conservative, and there were Franco-sympathizers in high positions in the government. And many people in Britain felt that Britain's huge investments in Spain, particularly in the mining industry, would be better treated under a Franco regime than they were under the Spanish Republic, which had been quite permissive where labor union organizing was concerned. Uh, France actually was under the same kind of government as the Spanish Republic, the Popular Front, a coalition of liberal and left-wing parties. But France itself was on the verge of civil war. Um, There were street demonstrations in Paris where people were killed. The guy who uh, later became prime minister of France, Leon Blum, was at one point pulled out of his car on the street and beaten up. Uh, There were deaths. There were also people high in the French military who were sympathizers of the Spanish nationalists. And the French government just felt they would have too much... Uh, upheaval on their hands at home if they intervened in Spain in any significant way. In the United States, uh, President Roosevelt was certainly a man who hated fascism and sympathized with the Spanish Republic, but he knew that he had no constituency for backing it here Mm. in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, There were very few ties to Spain. Uh, Roosevelt was a keen reader of opinion polls, Mm -hmm. and the Gallup poll showed that you know, even though there were more Americans who favored the Spanish Republic than favored the Spanish nationalists, the great majority of Americans had no opinion on the subject at all. Um, it's also widely believed that Roosevelt promised the American Catholic hierarchy uh, in uh, mid-1936, just before he ran for re-election, that he would not intervene in Spain. The Catholic Church in the U.S., the bishops and cardinals and so on, were deeply upset because there had been thousands of members of the clergy killed by angry mobs in the Spanish Republic. Right. Uh, the Republic was very anti-clerical. Um, 
there were there were tens of thousands of people killed uh, there in the early months of the war. Many of them were clergy because the clergy were seen as being allied with the, the nationalists and, and the big landowners and so on, promising people a better life in the next world so mm-hmm. they shouldn't agitate for a better <laughs> one in this world. So for those reasons, the United States stayed out as well. And uh, it put the uh, defenders of the Republic in a terrible situation. As you write, defenders of the Republic were fighting for one of the finest causes beside one of the nastiest of allies, end of quote. One of the things that I had not known about the war was the two, uh, the, the intense fights going on simultaneously. There was the war against the, the nationalists, and there, there were the anarchists and the Popular Front, if I have it right, on one side, and the communists controlled by Moscow on the other, sort of a war within the war. Tell us about this uh, rather little-known struggle. Well, the Spanish Republic was a very complicated place as it was fighting for its survival. The government of the Republic was uh, controlled by uh, what one could call mainstream parties, you know, somewhat similar to Christian Democrats and Social Democrats in in Western Europe today. But there was also a very strong anarchist movement in Spain. Yes. Uh, The movement had always been quite strong there, even though by the mid-1930s it had, had almost entirely died out everywhere else in the world. The anarchists, uh, believed in bottoms-up democracy, Uh, they believed in abolishing money as a means of exchange, they believed that workers should run their own factories and peasants should own their own land and everything should be owned communally. It was a somewhat uh, foggy creed. One can empathize with the spirit behind it, but Mm -hmm. uh, you do wonder how one could live in a modern industrial society without money as a means of exchange. But the anarchists were hugely influential. Uh, The Anarchist Trade Union Federation claimed uh, more than two million members. And actually, when uh, the nationalists' coup attempt was initially defeated in northeastern Spain, it was not loyal soldiers who defeated it. It was largely anarchist-led militias that had been organized by left-wing political parties and trade unions. And when they did turn back the coup in the northeast, Barcelona, surrounding Catalonia, uh, neighboring Aragon, these uh, worker militias found themselves in control of a huge swath of Spain and really put into effect one of the most far-reaching social revolutions ever seen anywhere. Certainly the, the... the most profound one seen in Western Europe. Workers took over factories, including the Ford and General Motors plants in Barcelona. Uh, peasants took over these big estates. Uh, railway uh, locomotive drivers took over the railway system. Amazing. Uh, waiters took over restaurants. The, the dining room of the Ritz Hotel in Barcelona was converted to people's cafeteria number one for the poor. It was an amazing moment. Uh, <clears throat> and... As I say, one can empathize with the spirit at the same time as I think it's a legitimate question, you know, whether it's a good idea to try to do a revolution like this going into uncharted uh, experimental territory when you're in the middle of a desperate war for survival against an army backed by Hitler and Mussolini. Yeah, 
it, the idea of uh, you know an egalitarian and decentralized army. <laughs> I mean, realistically, it's no way to fight to to win a war. And of course, the uh, the Soviets who helped out, people weren't crazy about them, but they were organized. There were when the democracies uh, held back. Uh, eventually, uh, Joseph Stalin, who at this point you know, was dictator of the Soviet Union, he had hoped that the U.S., Britain, and France would take on the job of helping the Spanish Republic survive because it was a long way from Moscow. Uh, he had his hands full with the great purge that was just beginning in Russia at that time uh, at home. Uh, but when the democracies held back, then Stalin began selling the Republic the arms that it so desperately needed. But he asked for a lot in return, high positions for both Spanish and Soviet communists in the Republican Army's high command uh, and in the security forces. Uh, that help from the Soviet Union uh, did enable the Republic to hold out for more than two more years. Without it, uh, I think Franco would have conquered the whole country probably by the end of 1936. Um, it did enable the republic to hold out, but it also produced its own form of nastiness because Stalin was extremely uh, <clears throat> intolerant of any kind of uh, dissension within the left. And uh, uh, there was a, a small left-wing political party in Spain, the, the PUM, composed of people who had formerly been a part of the communist movement who were now denouncing his arrests and purge trials and uh, he hounded them mercilessly. Uh, so there was a lot of nasty infighting that continued on the Republican side. Yeah, so the other side, and I've often found through the years that uh, it seems uh, traditional that, that the left is kind of masochistic, destroying itself, eating itself apart through criticism and self-criticism. So the left is masochistic, the right is exceptionally organized and sadistic. So it's a great combination. One side they got organized, sadistic, the other side masochistic, guess who wins when you're talking about <laughs> violence ruling the day? Uh, if you just tuned in, this is quite a story, and it's real, and it's not that well known. The book is Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War, 1936-39. through 39. Our guest today is the author Adam Hoekshild. Um, and you write, among while we're on this subject, among the American volunteers, and again, there are about 2,800 of them, quote, few of the men had ever been under military discipline, though many of them as union members had plenty of experience in loudly demanding their rights. How did this play, out, play itself out in fighting the war? Well, it certainly made the Americans quick to protest when uh, <clears throat> they objected to the food they were given to eat or what they felt were incompetent officers at a higher level or insufficient training. And there are a couple of occasions where they sent protest delegations to talk to superior officers, something which, of course, shocked the Europeans on hand because uh, many of them were veterans of the First World War or of the Russian Civil War among the, the, the officers sent by Stalin. And uh, these were places where you didn't talk back to your officers. So... They uh, considered the Americans pretty unruly. There were a few Americans who'd had some military experience. Some, of, a couple of the older guys were First World War veterans, but uh, not very many. And and you talk about uh, one of the, uh, the the great leaders there, uh, Robert Merriman, and and his wife Marion. Uh, they they're sort of central characters in this. Who were they, and and what motivated them? 
Well, they are people I follow through this book, and in part, when you're writing this kind of history, um, you and and trying to base it around people, trying to bring it alive through the right. lives of individual men and women. Yeah. In part, who you choose depends on who left a significant written record behind. Hmm. And the Merrimans did so. Uh, Bob Merriman kept a diary while he was in Spain, and remarkably, uh, most of it survived the war. Uh, his wife, Marion, he was killed there, but uh, his yeah. wife, Marion, uh, was also in Spain. She wrote a memoir many years later. There are also a lot of letters back and forth between them, and many accounts by other people who encountered them in Spain. Journalists, uh, other fighters, uh, and so on. So I had a lot of material to work with, and I felt a kind of an odd personal connection with them because as I was going through their papers, uh, I discovered that uh, a few years before they went to Spain, uh, Bob Merriman was a graduate student uh, here at Berkeley, where I live, uh, and they lived uh, a couple of blocks away from where I do today. Every time I walked from my house to the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley, where I teach a class, I walked past the building where they lived. So I felt a certain connection to these folks. Um, When they went to Spain, Bob Merriman was actually one of the very few Americans who'd had any kind of military training, because when he was an undergraduate working his way through college in the Depression, at the uh, University of Nevada, he discovered you could earn an extra $8.50 a month, which was a lot of money in the Depression years, by taking ROTC. So when he got to Spain, he was one of the very few Americans who'd had any sort of training, and he almost immediately was made commander of the American battalion there. Uh, He was wounded in action, uh, then returned to the front sometime later, was chief of staff of the 15th International Brigade, which was the unit that included all American, Mm -hmm. British, and Canadian volunteers, and some from other countries as well, uh, was widely liked and admired by virtually everybody who encountered him uh, in Spain. And if there are elements of his story that sound at all familiar to people, you know, a, a tall, athletic, uh, physically courageous former university instructor from the American West who loses his life in Spain, it's because Ernest Hemingway, who knew him well, took some of the details of his life for the life of the hero Robert Jordan in Hemingway's novel For Whom the Bell Tolls. Ah, ah, interesting. I wish I had met the guy, but obviously he didn't make it... Uh one of the last battles. And you quote Albert Camus. I mean, there were a lot of VIPs and journalists who just, you know, were, were drawn to that. And one of them, I believe, was uh, Albert Camus, who said, "My men of my generation have had Spain in our hearts. What was the sad lesson his generation took from the defeat of the Republic at the hands of the fascists? Yeah, Camus himself was, was actually not in Spain. He was writing this about uh, nine or ten years after the war. Uh-huh. Uh, he was slightly too young uh, to have fought there. But he meant that, I think, that people of his generation, that is, people who came of age in the early 1940s, uh, had the memory of this war in Spain where volunteers had gone from literally all over the world, 
yes. you know, thousands of them had given their lives. It was a good cause. It was a cause that ought to have won, and they lost. Mm-hmm. And the quote goes on to say, I can't remember the wording exactly, but it's, uh, uh, you know, there we learned in Spain that you could be right and yet be defeated, that nice. courage was not its own reward, uh, and so on. Yeah, yeah, terrible. I mean, talk about tragic. I wonder, I mean, one can never know this, but looking at history and uh, seeing what could have been, what might have been, is very interesting to discuss and consider, and it's not unreasonable. So my question is, had the Republic, you know, perhaps not been seen as so revolutionary to the French and British and Americans and just been, you know, fighting for democracy, had they gotten a decent supply of weapons, do you think they would have won? I think yes, because, you know, if Britain, France, and the U.S., who were major, major arms manufacturers, uh, Britain had a huge surplus uh, of arms on hand, the United States had one of the world's most advanced aircraft industries, um, France, uh, you know, was a big arms manufacturer, had they quickly and readily supplied arms to the Republic, uh, I think the Republic could have prevailed. The Soviet Union did provide arms, but they were slow in starting. It wasn't until three or four months after the war that the first arms shipments came. And actually, those first arms shipments, the Soviets used actually to clean out of their warehouses a lot of obsolete, Uh uh, antiquated arms that they didn't want. Uh, And then the supply line from Russia was very long, and it rapidly got interrupted uh, when, in the mid-1937, Mussolini's submarines began sinking Soviet freighters in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Soviets then had to send the arms they were selling uh, down through the, uh, along the Atlantic coast and transship them across France. France periodically would hold up those arms shipments for months at a time before letting them through. So after late 1937, relatively few new Soviet arms got through to Spain. But if, you know, Britain had supplied the Republic, for example, with the latest uh, uh, Hurricane and Spitfire fighter aircraft, uh, which came online during the time of the Spanish Civil War, and Mm. later what allowed Mm. Britain to, to win the Battle of Britain, Fabulous weapons. Uh, had the Republic had aircraft like that, had it had the most modern American, British, and, and French tanks and artillery and so on, I think they could have prevailed. Uh, and and uh, the result of the war would have been different. Oh, abso- uh, absolutely. And I wanted to, there was a, a story in The Nation magazine during, I'm not sure exactly what year it was, but during the Spanish Civil War, where the title of the story was A Second World War? Question mark. What about the argument that had the U.S. and the other democracies uh, uh, fought against uh, uh, fascism and dealt fascism a, a decisive defeat in Spain, it might have prevented a Second World War? Uh, that actually, I don't think. I wouldn't go so far as to say that because I think Hitler was absolutely determined to start a Second World War. This was what he lived and breathed. Yeah dreamed about. And also his main interest, uh, Spain kind of took him by surprise. 
he jumped in to help Franco, and it proved a, a marvelous laboratory for him for, for testing weapons that he was then going to use in World War II. But his main interest was always in expanding to the east. Uh, he wanted to reach the, the Balkan and Caspian oil fields. Uh, uh, he wanted to um, establish that it was Germany and not Russia, which would be the dominant power in Eastern Europe. This was always his main interest, and I think he would have pursued that no matter who won the Spanish Civil War. But if the United States, Britain, and France had been bold enough to uh, step in and sell the Spanish Republic the arms that it so desperately was trying to buy, I think it would have indicated an attitude on the part of those countries, which would have made it unlikely that... Britain and France would have given away as much to Hitler at Munich as they uh-huh. did. Uh, so, you know, one has to sort of construct a chain of, mm-hmm. if only this had happened, and right. that would have happened, and so on. It's, it's, it's hard to speculate about, but I think it would if the Western countries had had a different attitude towards the rise of Nazism, uh, that might have kept Hitler more contained and the Second World War, I think, still would have happened, but in a very different fashion. Hmm, maybe just the Eastern Front. Interesting. How were the international brigades and the American group, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, treated when they were captured by the nationalists? Uh, pretty badly. Uh, there was a long period of time when the nationalists announced that they would shoot uh, any internationals who were captured. Uh, and this they did, and it's believed that this is what's hap- what happened to Robert Merriman, for example. Then, after uh, the spring of 1938, uh, they no longer were all shot because there were some uh, Italians who'd been fighting for Franco who were in the hands of the Republic, and uh, Franco needed to have some international prisoners whom he could use as a bargaining chip to get them freed. Uh, So there were uh, at least several hundred captured internationals who survived the war in nationalist prison camps, um, you know, where conditions predictably were were quite horrible and tough. What about... But they did survive, including a number of Americans. So they were treated pretty harshly by the nationalists, but then after time they could see that it might be in their interest to yeah a little bit uh, tougher. And of course, public relations is everything. When the many years later, when the veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade got together year after year after year, they were always treated as heroes. It was a very perhaps romanticized picture, and I I do see them as true heroes. They put they gave up their own freedom to, to fight for something they believed in to defend democracy. You have an interesting quote. Idealism and bravery, after all, are not always synonymous with wisdom. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, I think what I was uh, had in mind there was this. The great majority of the American volunteers, and this the same was true of the volunteers who went to Spain from more than 50 other countries, were members or sympathizers of the Communist Party. Yes. And, you know, that was where the illusions came in, I think, because the Soviet Union, which uh, so many of them believed was paradise, turned out to be quite a horror show, especially at that time in the 1930s. But 
I think they were still heroes, too. They weren't fighting for the Soviet Union. They were fighting to uh, try to save democracy in Spain. And uh, I think for that, they deserve to be honored. I would say so. And the and, and there are lessons in schools, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade archives, if listeners are interested. Alba Valb, go to the website, A-L-B-A slash V-A-L-B, or maybe it's just Alba. I'm not sure because there aren't any veterans left. Uh, but there's a lot of information on there. Now, more than 15 million Americans fought the fascists in Japan and in uh, Italy and in Germany, of course, during the Second World War. They were heroes for fighting fascism. What happened to those who fought the fascists before the Second World War? I'm talking about, of course, the veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the so-called premature anti-fascists. And why was it bad to be a premature anti-fascist? I could never quite figure that out. Well, they were given a pretty tough time when they came back to the U.S. Uh, Many of them uh, lost their passports when they got off the ship in New York. Um, They were hounded relentlessly virtually all of them, whether they remained Communist Party members, whether they left the party, whether they turned anti-communist or whatever, you know, the FBI would ceaselessly send agents to go and question them. The FBI would send agents to talk to their employers, you know, are you aware that you're employing somebody who once fought for a cause supported by the Soviet Union, and so on. Um, So a lot of them had trouble getting and keeping jobs. Uh, when World War II began, uh, more than 400 American veterans of the Spanish Civil War enlisted in the U.S. Armed Forces. There, their fortunes varied. In some cases, they also had a rough time in the Army and were relegated to stay in the rear or peel potatoes in the kitchen or whatever. In some cases, though, where these, these men had uh, found themselves with commanding officers who were smart enough to know here was somebody who's had actual military experience. I describe in, in my book a, a, a very sweet thing that happened to one of them, uh, an Englishman named Bernard Knox, who had uh, immigrated to the U.S. right after the Spanish Civil War, found himself in the American Armed Forces during World War II, and was at one point sent behind the lines to be the liaison with a group of uh, Italian uh, partisan fighters against Mussolini in mm-hmm. Italy. Mm-hmm. And as he describes in writing about this, he said, my my half-forgotten Spanish was getting mixed up with my newly acquired Italian. And as he was meeting this group of partisans for the first time, suddenly the the, the leader of the partisans stood up and came across the room and said, you must have been in Spain, recognizing all the Spanish. And it turned out that this guy also had fought in Spain, and they figured out that they were, as an international volunteer, that they had both fought uh, in the battle for the defense of Madrid in the fall of 1936. And Knox goes on to say in his, his memoir, from then on we had no trouble dealing with the partisans. <laughs> I'm sure. And um, I, I wonder, as you write, Spain of the 1930s was a crucial battleground of its time, but it is also a resonant one for ours as well. How is that? Well, I think uh, the battle that was going on in Spain between uh, a 
somewhat fragile, democratically elected government that was trying to reduce vast disparities of wealth, trying to carry out land reform, uh, things like that. This is a similar kind of battle to what goes on in many places today. It doesn't take the, the form of the civil war, right. but we're certainly living in a world where inequalities of all sorts uh, are on the rise. Uh, and, uh, you know, people are still having to fight for basic things like, you know, the, the right to have a decent education, the right to a decent share of land when it's an agricultural country, the right to have, uh, <clears throat> you know, a well-paying job where, you know, the CEO of the company where you work isn't paid 500 times as much as you are, um, these are things that people are still fighting for all over the world, and it's why I think the legacy of this period uh, uh, is so important. And I just wanted to uh, reemphasize something that, that you said, Bert, that the work that the Abraham Lincoln Brigade's archives does in trying to keep uh, the memory of these people alive and the spirit of what they're doing alive, the materials they prepare for high school teachers who want to teach about this because it's something that's usually left out of the U.S. high school curriculum. Yes. This is very important stuff. Why is it left out of the U.S. high school curriculum? It seems almost like, you know, there are uh, nations where we have different kinds of government, shall we say, where there's, you know, this what can be taught in schools is very strictly controlled. Theoretically, we're not like that. But why? Why is it so little known and and not often taught in in our high schools? It's a heck of a story. I think it might be better remembered had it not been immediately followed by World War II, which oh, was right. a huge experience for this country, of course, because we had so many millions of Americans in in uniform, uh, several hundred thousand of them killed, and you know everybody has somebody in their family who fought in, in World War II and maybe was killed or wounded there. And that kind of supplanted the Spanish Civil War in people's minds, even mm. though, as I was saying earlier in the hour, you know, it was a huge news event of its time and got a great deal of coverage in this, in this country when it was going on. And people that we've been talking about, like Bob Merriman, you know, were mentioned in the columns of the, the country's major newspapers. But then World War II just kind of eclipsed all of that. And but why is it important to teach, do you think? Why should high school kids? I mean, I've occasionally uh, taught about it uh, in some schools, but uh, and the, nobody's ever heard of it, and they're blown away. Why do you think it's important to teach? Well, I think any time that you see people risking their lives to fight for a cause involving greater justice, whether it's fighting in the Spanish Civil War, whether it's the many people who risked and sometimes lost their lives fighting for civil rights in the American South, whether it's people who similarly risked and occasionally lost their lives fighting for the rights of labor in the early years of the 20th century and the late years of the 19th century. These are important times uh, to remember. You know, we always tend to celebrate military history in this country. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima and the Battle of Gettysburg and all of that. But the fights that interest me are those, you know, for justice, where people often were going very much against the grain of yeah. their times. Those are the people we need to remember.
And you, you tell the story of that in uh, one of your other books, To End All Wars Against the uh, Insanity of the First World War. They certainly went against the uh, popular will. And I dare say they were right. <laughs> they were right. Fascinating stuff. The book is called Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War. Our guest today has been its author, Adam Hochschild. Thank you so much for uh, yet another great book and uh, for being with us and uh, helping keep democracy alive. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Bert. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. This is a song about the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Give a listen. From the farms, from the cities, from every land came the Abe Lincoln Brigade. With a dream in their hearts and a gun in their hands, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No passeran, no passeran, so sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Across the years and the oceans, we still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Rise from the cities, the shouts from the hills of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. The fire in the hearts that is warming us still, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No passeran, no passeran, so sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Across the years and the oceans, we still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Side by side with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No passeran, no passeran, so sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Across the years and the oceans, we still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. So raise glasses and voices, give them a toast. Oh, the Abe Lincoln Brigade Those who die best are the ones who live most Like the Abraham Lincoln Brigade No passeran, no passeran So sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade Across the years and the oceans We still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade No passeran, no passeran so sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade Across the years and the oceans we still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade